This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title The Fall of Sound Words and we are considering still the question of what is truth and this is number three under that heading. In the first case, you may remember that we were warned that we walk by faith and not by sight and that even in this world even in this physical world, we have to be content with many times an appearance and not with an actual fact. It's so very difficult to be sure what is reality. Uh, we spoke about uh, the things that we see, which is reflected light and so on. But I won't go into that again. We are warned in the scriptures that we should not trust in appearances, uh, but we should remember that in the question of spiritual things, we walk by faith and not by sight. In the realm of pure science, you can demonstrate, without the possibility of being denied, that the two angles at the, the base of a right-angled triangle are equal. Or you could demonstrate by picking up two things and picking up two more things and putting them together and counting them that two and two make four. But truth in the inward parts, truth that has to do with the heart and not merely with the mentality, truth which belongs to another realm, comes to you and says, He that cometh to God must believe that he is. Well, you say, until I can have it demonstrated that that is true, I'll not believe another single word. Well, you may have to go on to the end of your life, friends. Truth, in the spiritual sense, is in an atmosphere of trust. They go together, truth and trust. And we are told that now, in this present life, we see by means of a mirror, enigmatically or in a riddle. We are told that. But the day is coming when we shall know, even as we are known. But that's not now. And there's a possibility, there's a mercy in it. For if we knew what we shall know one day, without the ability to sustain it and the grace to walk in harmony with it, it would overwhelm us. Well now today, I want to take another line. That is to say, even in science, there is what is called the empiric. You can't always be sure. But you say to yourself, well, it works. And that's a good start, isn't it? It works. Well, I say, so far as the truth of God is concerned, it works. I can't tell you exactly how it works, perhaps. But I can say this. I don't know this and I don't know that like the poor blind man who was healed. But one thing I know, one thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. And no argument in the world can take a, can rob a man of that if that was his position. They turned him out of the synagogue, but he, he gladly accepted that as a consequence. So we'll look today not at the theory of truth, 
but we'll consider the possibilities that are associated with it, if it's accepted. I come straight away to our epistle to the Ephesians, and I notice in chapter 113 that the gospel, that is the good tidings of salvation, which we must have believed in order that we are saved, in order that we know the blessedness of the forgiveness of sins, or entertain any hope of the glorious future, is called the word of truth. Ephesians 1 verse 13 In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth. What do you say, I may have heard a word, but how do I know it is truth? Well, let's think again. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, I know your election. How do you know that? You haven't seen the book of God's decrees, have you? No, he said. But I saw the response that you gave to the preaching of the gospel. And the outside evidence is enough for me that you're one of God's chosen. So you see, we're living in a different realm when we're in connection with the gospel and spiritual teaching. You won't get it demonstrated so that you can work it out on a blackboard, but you can get it demonstrated so it works out upon your life. And that, of course, is deeper still. So it says here, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believe ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So you're given a start here. You believe the gospel, and the Spirit of God seals it to you, not by signs or wonders, uh, but the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit, that we are the children of God. And that has sealed us unto the day of possession. And when the day of possession comes, we shall know in a sense we cannot know now. This emphasis upon the word of truth in connection with the gospel is repeated. We might as well get the double statement in Colossians chapter 1, the parallel epistle. He says in chapter 1, Verse 3, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world. And here's the point and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard it, and knew the grace of God in truth. It's associated with hope, and with love. You can't demonstrate those by, or any mathematics. They're there. But there is one test that's brought out here. It produces fruit. Now you may have no knowledge of horticulture. I'm supposed to know a bit, but it is a bit. 
I did use the letters after my name for a period, but I wouldn't like you to consult me on anything that mattered very much, for I don't know. But I do know this, that if I see fruit on a tree in anybody's garden, I know there is a root beneath, although I can't see it. And if you say you don't believe anything you can't see, that's silly because there'd be no fruit on the tree if there were no invisible root. So, you see, we live in a different realm and we must remember that the atmosphere of faith and hope and love are all a part of this witness to the truth. And then if we turn to the second epistle to Timothy, which is Paul's last epistle, supposing we think of it only as the writing of a man, just to be a man. Well, the last thing on earth that you could call the Apostle Paul was a mere credulous person who swallowed anything and believed anything. And yet, in this epistle, we have the emphasis upon truth, writing to Timothy, almost in view of the fact that he'd finished, Paul had finished his course, he had kept the faith, and he was looking forward to being with the Lord. A man doesn't trifle when he speaks like that. Now there are six occasions where he speaks about truth, and when you put the whole of the six down, they fall into one of those beautiful little patterns that we find so evident when we are dealing with a, a special feature or word. So I'll give you the two, first of all, that come in the middle. And then I'll give you the two that come next outside, and then I'll give you the two outside ones at the last. And you'll see that they work like that. Now the two that come in the middle are chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2, verse 25. Um, <coughs> just... Twenty-five. Oh yes. It says in verse 24, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. I think you'll agree with me that if anything can liberate a person who has been taken captive by the devil, that sounds as though it's fairly trustworthy. Now that's that. See, the acknowledging of the truth. Now the parallel to that, the balance to that is in chapter 3, verse 7. Certain type, ever learning and never able come to a knowledge or acknowledging of the truth. There they are. So some do acknowledge the truth and are delivered. Some are ever learning and never get there. You say, well, isn't that shocking? Well, that's so, but there it is, you see. So there are the two references, the acknowledging or knowledge of the truth. Now on either side of that, we get a warning. Chapter 2, 18. There are two names mentioned here. Verse 17, Their word will eat as doth a canker, 
of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. So there are two. They were living at the time when Paul wrote, living and perhaps connected with the church uh, that Timothy was engaged at the time, Hymenius and Philetus. Now when you look at chapter 3, verse 8, now as Jans and Jambres withstood Moses, they are not Hymenius and Philetus, but they are two names, names that we find in the traditions of the people, the names of the magicians who withstood Moses. As Jans and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these resist also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. So there's the two, ancient and modern representatives. Then we have on the outside, chapter 2.15, where we have that well-known verse, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And in chapter 4, we have in verse 4, oh, it says in verse 3, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. So you either rightly divide the word of truth, and you'll be unashamed, or you'll turn away from the truth, and you'll just believe a lie. As we saw the terrible statement, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It didn't say because they were not scientific or philosophic or clever. It was because they had no love for the truth that at last they believed a lie as a sort of consequence. So you see, in the estimate of the Apostle Paul, truth was something that he recognised and that he held in great regard passed it on to his son Timothy. Well now if you turn to the epistle of James that's written by a writer to the twelve tribes who were scattered abroad nevertheless it still maintains the working of truth. Chapter 1 verse 18 Oh I think we'll look at verse uh, 17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, nor the shadow of turning. That we may not fully understand, but at least it, it does tell us there's nothing here that is evil, or nothing here that is a deceitful thing. It's open, it's in the light, such full light. Of his own will, begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, to beget is to bring forth or bring into existence children. And that is a mighty miracle that goes on even physically before our eyes day by day. So the fruit of the tree or the family in the home is used as an illustration of a mighty power 
And that mighty power is, in both cases, is this emphasis upon the truth, the word of truth. Shall we turn to Peter? 1 Peter, chapter 1, 22. It says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Well, how did you purify your soul? Well, you say, I don't know anything about it. I don't know how to go about it. You don't have to. If you believe the truth of God, it has that effect. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You don't have to do it. So long as you receive the truth in love and reality, no deception, it has this wonderful effect. So you see, you can, from, a, from one point of view, say, well, it's got an evidence about it. It may not always be obvious to every person. But the person himself who knows what he once was and what he now is, can take courage and say to himself, well, I may not know how the word of truth purifies, but I say to him, you may not know how the oxygen you breathe in your lungs purifies your blood, but it's supposed to do it. You don't worry, you don't sit there and gasp and say, I don't know whether to breathe or not because I don't know what's happening, because you wouldn't have much time, would you? You just go on without two thoughts. And so... I'm suggesting to you that the great test for whether a thing is true is whether it works. And if it works, and it comes from God, it will never be against the, the, what we know as right and wrong. It will never be in favour of righteousness or of wickedness, but it will always be in the other direction. We might look at um, uh, Ephesians, Chapter 6, uh, because there's another aspect in which the word of truth uh, comes into play, that is, in chapter 6. He says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now the one against whom you are standing is the liar. Our Saviour said that this one, Satan, is a liar and the father of it. And you have the armour of God and you are you're given a guarantee that so long as you use that armour you will withstand and you will stand. Now there are some folks as far as I can see the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, mentioned here at the end. See, your loins girt about with truth, 
that's invisible. At least it should be. If you've got armour on, well, nobody sees what you've got round your loins. But believe me, friends, all the armour in the world is no good if within, as well as without, there is truth. But the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is the only weapon that we have. If that should fail, we must fail. And then I hear someone tearing the book to pieces. And it's as though he's going out to fight a spiritual foe. And when he draws his sword, the handle comes off. Or the point buckles up. Oh no. I see my saviour tempted by this same foe in the wilderness. And my saviour could do what I cannot do. He could perform miracles. But he didn't. He withstood the tempter in exactly the same way that I can. In what way did he withstand it? He simply said, three times over, it is written. It is written. Three times over. And that beat the evil one. And he left it. The moment you entertain doubts with regard to the truth of God, there's a little chink in your armour and he'll soon find it out. We don't use bows and arrows now in uh, warfare, but the trained archer in the early days of Agincourt used to try to find the chink in the enemy's armour. And this very often did. They were marksmen. And here we have the emphasis once again of the sword of the spirit, the word of truth. So, it produces fruit, it brings about salvation, it cleanses or purifies, and it equips and fits for the contest. I think that if you've got something which answers so many of those um, features, you say, well, it's no good denying its existence, although we may not be able to give a demonstration that would satisfy some minds. Well, now let's take another aspect while we have the opportunity. The word true, if we were to ask anyone without preparation beforehand, what is the opposite of the word true? I suppose we would say the false. Well, that is true in the outside world. But in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, the word true is very often the opposite of the word shadow or type. Let me give you some illustrations. The epistle to the Hebrews. The epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 8. There are two or three references here that will come together. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. Well, that doesn't mean to say that what you read in Exodus 
about the tabernacle which Moses erected with all the specifications given to him and the command to see that he made everything according to the pattern shown him in the mount. We don't say that was false. But we say, see, that was only a shadow. That was a foreshadowing. That was a type. And the reality is heaven itself. Not a tent down here upon earth. Shall we look again at another passage? Chapter 8, verse 5. He says, verse 4, For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto, now it comes, the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God. So we are told in the scriptures that what Moses did, although it was made of real stuff, real metal, real wood, and could be packed up and carried and re-erected, it was in its turn a shadow, an example, a type. And then again in chapter 9, 24. 9, 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. So they're brought together now. And here we have a word, anti-type. If you've got the original in front of you, you will see it's not merely a type now, it's an anti-type. Well, you say, what's an anti-type? Well, anti doesn't mean contradictory, it means balance, one over against the other. An antichrist is one who's seeking to be like Christ in some ways. Against him, yes. But anti means over against like that. So now we have the word, it was a figure of the true. And where is the true? In, he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, I ought to have read back perhaps in verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified by these. The patterns were purified by patterns. But the heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices, the real great offering of Christ. And then we have in, ver in chapter 9, verse 9, another word that creeps in. It says about the high priest, uh, verse 7, that into the second part of the tabernacle went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost this signify. Now split the word signify up into its two parts and mispronounce it for a moment. Signify. Signify. The book of the Revelation, chapter 1, he sent and signified it to his servant John. He sent and signified it. He showed it by a whole series of signs to John. So here we have another word then. The Holy Ghost thus signify that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure. Now here we have another word. Not merely a type, not merely an anti-type, but a parable. And we don't think of a parable as a thing, do we? We think of a parable as a saying. 
Well, anything is a parable which sets forth in picture form something which is not visible or tangible. So, type, anti-type, parable. And they are all contrasted with one word, the true. So the true doesn't mean something opposite to false. The true means the reality. And all the others that we say seeing is believing, well, they're the ones that you say, well, that's not quite true. Seeing is not believing in the spiritual world. Blessed are your eyes, he said, the Lord said, because you have believed. But he said, blessed are those who having not seen shall also believe. So that's the way in which this is emphasized. And if you will come to Romans chapter 5, verse 14, you will just see how uh, it speaks there of just Adam being a figure. Romans 5, verse 14. Just to pick up another sort of type. 5.14 Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. The transgression of Adam was a similitude, a likeness. And Adam himself was a picture or a figure of Christ, who is called the second man and the last Adam. Now one of the most important passages is found in the Gospel according to John. Will you turn to that? John the first chapter. It says in verse um, seven, uh, verse 16, And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Now this is grace, anti-grace. Grace over against grace. One sort of grace over against another sort. Oh, you say, what's all this mean? For, he explains, the law was given by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Well, on the surface it looks as though what Moses gave you wasn't true, and only what Christ gave. But Christ stood by Moses right through the Gospel of John. He endorsed Moses. So once again you see, true grace, not grace and truth, the true antitypical grace, the real thing, not the picture, came by Jesus Christ. But what Moses gave us, was not the true thing in that sense, but it was a type and a shadow. So we say, the law was given by Moses, but true grace, antitypical grace, the real thing, came by Jesus Christ. I'll give you another one. Chapter 6, 32. Chapter 6, 32. They said to our Saviour, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, don't forget these words are, Amen, Amen, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread. He didn't say the manna was false, but he said the manna was a picture, a type. It was all that Moses could give, but he said, My Father gives you something more than the manna. 
he gives you the real thing of which that was a type. And one other reference, in chapter 15, you remember that he says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Well, where he was standing, there was possibly a vineyard with vines growing and bearing grapes all around him. He didn't deny they were there, but he said they are pictures of me and of our relationship and of our fruit bearing as disciples. And then, ultimately, we get a very lengthy figure of speech where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And strictly speaking, you retranslate it to read like this, I am the true and living way. Not contrasted with that which is false, but contrasted with that which is type and shadow. So I think as far as we can, we have endeavoured to give a little hearing, a very little hearing, to this great subject of what is truth. And we discover that truth is perceived in the realm of spirit, in faith and in love. And if they're absent, the chances are, we shall say, I don't believe it, I cannot see it, therefore it doesn't exist. If you were standing before a wonderful picture and explaining to somebody at your side the light and shade, the marvellous colours, and he seemed to be unmoved, and you looked at him and said, oh, I'm talking to a blind man, how can he understand what I'm saying? So never be disconcerted when you're speaking to somebody about the truth of God if he says, well, I don't see it. Say, well, friend, that doesn't prove it isn't there, but it may prove that you're blind. Let us pray that God will open the eyes of your heart. That's the word used in Ephesians 1. You may have the eyes of your understanding opened, and you may know all knowledge, and yet be as blind as a bat, and dead as a dodo. So may God give us grace to be thankful for the type and the shadow that points ultimately to him. To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life.